Section five of Mrs. Shelley by Lucy Maddox Rossetti. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mrs. Shelley by Lucy Maddox Rossetti. Chapter three, part one. Shelley. Shelley, a name dear to so many now, who are either drawn to him by his lyrics, which open an undreamed of fountain of sympathy to many a silent, otherwise solitary heart or who else are held spellbound by his grand and eloquent poetical utterances of what the human race may aspire to. A being of this transcendent nature seems generally to be more the outcome of his age, of a period, the expression of nature, than the direct scion of his own family. So in Shelley's case there appears little immediate intellectual relation between himself and his ancestors, who seem for nearly two centuries preceding his birth to have been almost unknown, except for the registers, of their baptisms, deaths, and marriages. Prior to 1623, a link has been hitherto missing in the family genealogy, a link which the scrupulous care of Mr. Jefferson has brought to light, and which his courtesy places at the service of the writer. This connects the poet's family with the Michael Grove Shelleys, a fact hitherto only surmised. The document is this. Shelley's case in Coke's Report, 896. September 25th, 1 and 2 Philip and Mary, between Edward Shelley of Worminghurst in the county of Sussex, Esquire, of the one part, and Richard Cooper, and William Martin, of the other part. 98. Cover it to suffer recovery to Enyer, as to Findon Manor, etc. 90b. To the use of him the said Edward Shelley, and of the heirs male of his body lawfully begotten, and for lack of such issue. To the use of the heirs male of the body of John Shelley, Esquire, some time of Michael Grove, deceased, father to the said Edward Shelley, etc. It will be obvious to all readers of this important document, that the last clause carries us back unmistakably from the Worminghurst Shelleys to the Michael Grove Shelleys, establishing past dispute the relationship of father and son. The poet's great-grandfather Timothy, who died twenty-two years before Shelley's birth, seems to have gone out of the beaten track in migrating to America and practicing as an apothecary, or, as Captain Medwin puts it, quack doctor, probably leaving England at an early age. He may not have found facilities for qualifying in America, and we may at least hope that he would do less harm with the simple herbs used by the unqualified than with the bleeding treatment in vogue before the Brunonian system began. Anyway, he made money to help on the fortunes of his family. His younger son Bish, who added to the family wealth by marrying in succession two heiresses, also gained a baronetcy by adhering to the Whig party and the Duke of Norfolk. He appears to have been increased in eccentricity with age, and became exceedingly penurious, he was evidently not regarded as a desirable match for either of his wives, as he had to elope with both of them, and his marriage with the first, Miss Michelle, the grandmother of the poet, is said to have been celebrated by the parson of the fleet. This took place the year before these marriages were made illegal. These facts about Shelley's ancestors, though apparently trivial, are interesting as proving that his forerunners were not altogether conventional, and making the anomaly of the coming of such a poet less strange as genius is not unfrequently allied with eccentricity. Bish's son Timothy seems to have conformed more to the ordinary views than his father, and he married, when nearly forty, Elizabeth Hillfold, reputed a great beauty. The first child of this marriage, born on August 4, 1792, was the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, born to all the ease and comfort of an English country home, but with the weird imaginings which in childhood could people the grounds and surroundings with ancient snakes and fairies of all forms, and which later on were to lead him far out of the beaten track. 
Shelley's little sisters were the confidants of his childhood, and their sympathy must have made up then for the lack of it in his parents. Some of their childish games at diabolical processions, making a little hell of their own by burning a faggot stack, etc., shows how early his searching mind dispersed the terrors while it delighted in the picturesque or fantastic images of superstition. Few persons realize to themselves how soon highly imaginative children may be influenced by the superstitions they hear around them, and assuredly Shelley's brain never recovered from some of these early influences. The mind that could so quickly reason and form inferences would naturally be of that sensitive and susceptible kind which would bear the scar of bad education. Shelley's mother does not appear so much to have had real good sense, or what is generally called common sense, and thus she was incapable of understanding a nature like that of her son, and thought more of his bringing home a well-filled game-bag, a thing in every way repulsed to Shelley's tastes, than of trying to understand what he was thinking. So Shelley had to pass through childhood, his sisters being his chief companions, as he had no brother till he was thirteen. At ten years of age he went to school at Sion House Academy, and thence to Eton, before he was turned twelve. At both these schools, with little exception, he was solitary, not having much in common with the other boys, and consequently he found himself the butt for their tormenting ingenuity. He began a plan of resistance to the fagging system, and never yielded. This seems to have displeased the masters as much as the boys. At Eton he formed one of his romantic attachments for a youth of his own age. He seems now, as ever after, to have felt the yearning for perfect sympathy in some human being. As one idol fell short of his self-formed ideal, he sought for another. This was not the nature to be trained by bullying and flogging, though sympathy and reason would never find him irresponsive. His unresentful nature was shown in the way he helped the boys who tormented him with their lessons, for though he appeared to study little in the regular way, learning came to him naturally. It must not, however, be supposed that Shelley was quite solitary, as the records of some of his old schoolfellows prove the contrary. Nor was he averse to society when of a kind congenial to his tastes, but he always disliked coarse talk and jokes. Nature was ever dear to him. The walks round Eton were his chief recreation, and we can well conceive how he would feel in the lovely and peaceful churchyard of the Stoke Pogus, where undoubtedly he would read Gray's Elegy. These feelings would not be sympathized with by the average schoolboys, but on the other hand it is not apparent why Shelley should have changed his character, as the embryo poet would also necessarily not care for all their tastes. In short, the education at a public school of that day must have been a great cruelty to a boy of Shelley's sensitive disposition. One great pleasure of Shelley's while at Eton was visiting Dr. Lind, who assisted him with his chemistry, and whose kindness during an illness seems to have made a lasting impression on the youth. But generally those who had been in authority over him had only raised a spirit of revolt, when great gain for the world was the passionate love of justice and freedom which this aroused in him, as shown in the stanzas from the Revolt of Islam. Thoughts of great deeds were mine, dear friend, when first the clouds which wrapped this world from youth did pass. There can be no doubt that these verses are truly autobiographical. They indicate a first determination to war against tyranny. The very fact of his great facility in acquiring knowledge must have been a drawback to him at school, where time on his hands was, for lack of better material, frequently spent in reading all the foolish romances he could lay hold of in the neighboring bookshops. His own early romances showed the influence of this bad literature. Of course, then as now, fine art was a sealed book to the young student. It is difficult to fancy what Shelley might have been under different early influences, and whether perchance the gain to himself might not have been a loss to the world. Fortunately, Shelley's love of imagination found at last a field of poetry for itself, 
in an ideal future for the world, instead of turning to ruffianism, high or low, which the neglect of the legitimate outlet for imagination so frequently induces. How little this moral truth seems to be considered in a country like ours, while art is quite overlooked in the system of government, and where the hereditary owners of hoarded wealth rest content, as a rule, with the canvases acquired by some ancestor on a grand tour at a date when Puritan England had already obliterated perception, so that frequently a few chef d'oeuvre and many daubs are hung indiscriminately together, giving equal pleasure or distaste for art. This is apposite to dwell on, as showing the want of this influence on Shelley and his surroundings. From a tour in Italy made by Shelley's own father, the chief acquisition is said to have been a very bad picture of Vesuvius. It is becoming difficult to realize at present, when flogging is scarcely permitted in schools, what the suffering of a boy like Shelley must have been. Sent to school by his father with the admonition to his master not to spare the rod, and where the masters left the boy, who was undoubtedly unlike his companions, to treatment of a kind from which one case of death at least has resulted quite recently in our own time. Such proceedings which might have made a tyrant or a slave of Shelley succeeded only in making a rebel. His inquiring mind was not to be easily satisfied, and must assuredly have been a difficulty in his way with a conservative master. Already at Eton we find him styled Mad Shelley, and Shelley the Atheist. End of chapter 3, part 1